Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is presented by Regions Bank. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated. The college football season has provided few surprises through the first six weeks, but this weekend features a bunch of marquee matchups that could generate the twists and turns that we have been lacking so far. Ross and I will hit the big games, especially LSU in Florida. He'll be at that game, and also not too long ago, Ross was an LSU beat writer, so he's got great insight on Ed Ogeron and Joe Burrow and the transformation of that offense. Plus, we'll discuss what we're looking to see from Texas versus Oklahoma, Alabama at AM, Penn State at Iowa, USC at Notre Dame, Florida State at Clemson. Lastly, we'll even talk a little less miles because Ross is an expert on that subject as well. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us at Podcast One and Apple Podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is Ross Dellinger. From Sports Illustrated, I think you're making, no, in fact, I know, you are making your debut on this podcast, Ross, so I appreciate you coming on and uh, chatting a little ball with me. How's it going? Yeah, good, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on. Well, you will be heading to uh, back to a familiar territory for you. Ross covered LSU for, gosh, it seemed like a long time, but it probably wasn't, right? Were, were you there about five or six years? Yeah, everybody. It's funny. Um, well, you nailed it. It's about I was there for about five years, but everybody thinks I was there for like fifteen years. You know, so they they always go back and talk about oh, you know, when Nick Saban was there and you know, an early Les Miles. And I'm like, I wasn't anywhere near there. I was in college. You know, so um, <laughs> it, it is. It, it seemed like I was there for for longer uh, than I really was, probably because the the years that I was there were just so crazy and wild. Um, and it just it seemed like they were very long seasons, very, very long. <laughs> well, so it's good that you're heading back there this week for SI to cover LSU in Florida. That's the big game of the week. But I also wanted to get your perspective on a bunch of things LSU-related. Uh, because when you were at LSU, it, it, you know that's why we are here now, why Ed Orgeron is the coach, why we, they have finally opened up the offense. And, and I guess let's start there. That idea of opening up the offense, right? I mean, I, I, that was probably a conversation that you had uh, had and were writing and, and a story that you were writing about for years uh, during your time at LSU as far as uh, covering LSU as far as opening up the offense. And they finally found a way to do it. I, I'm interested in your insight on why this match with Joe Brady and Ed Orgeron. Why is it why this time it seems to be sticking and taking? Yeah, it it was a long time coming. I remember, you know, I was down there from 2013 um, through uh, just before 2018. I just when basically I covered the team, and it was every spring and summer. You know, basically every single year. I would say starting after the um, 
certainly starting after the 15th season, but probably starting after 14 too, is every year we heard, you know, this is going to be the year LSU's going to open up and move to the spread and no fullbacks and spread, you know, wide receiver, five wide receivers and all that stuff. And, uh, happened after 15, after 16, 17, I mean, all the way back every single year. And, um, you know, every year there was a letdown when, when the season came and they lined up in the eye or had a fullback and two tight ends or whatever. And I think that's a great question you ask is why did it change this year? Um, I think it, there's a lot of, um, a lot of reasons. I think number one, is just the quarterback, you know, when you have a quarterback who is uh, like Joe Burrow, who's obviously competent, um, experienced, uh, accurate, really, you know, smart, um, makes good decisions and all that. So you got to have that first. And Clarence Ted Orgeron, he went out, went on the transfer market. He's done that a few times. I mean, he, that's the thing. The one thing that's kind of overlooked about his tenure um, is man, he has hit the waiver wire, so to speak, you know, and, He's landed like significant people. Um, Burrow is one, and uh, Terrence Alexander from Stanford, the cornerback they relied on heavily last year, uh, was another. And obviously Cole Tracy, the kicker, who won, you know, won like two or three games for them. Um, th- those were significant pieces that he went out and uh, he went out and got. But but to be back, get back to your question. Number one, the quarterback. Number two, the receivers, you know, and LSU's always been known for having receivers, but I think it's the depth at receiver. They can go a good four or five deep, and that hasn't necessarily been the case for LSU. They had one big star, maybe two. Um, that hasn't been the case that they have, you know, three, four, five receivers that they trust. So it's just the ability to get in the, get in the right players, and I think Ed Orgeron late last season realized that he had the right players to make the change, and that's when he went out and uh, – Found Joe Brady uh, with the New Orleans Saints, who's basically like a glorified GA uh, for the Saints, and uh, doing a lot of film work and stuff. Before that was at Penn State with uh, Joe Moorhead as just uh, as an actual GA. Um, so it was a risky move. I mean, this he was 29 years old when Ed hired him. Um, he's basically, you know, the coordinator. I mean, he, he shares play calling duties with Steve Insminger, and he came in and installed the. The spread installed the uh, the New Orleans Saints offense and passing game and the RPOs he got from uh, Joe Moorhead and um, you know we're uh, we're seeing it in uh, full throated action. Why do you think? I don't know how much you've had a chance to dig into this to bring in a guy who is basically a GA. What was it that Orgeron has said that he has seen saw in this? Guy? Was it a recommendation? Is he close with Peyton to an extent? Like there, there's got to be something here that set Brady off for Orgeron. I'm wondering what that may have been. Yeah, there, there is. There's a, there's a little backstory there. Um, you know, Brady, the Saints, uh, LSU every year, every every spring, summer has the Saints staff come in and talk uh, to, to, you know, Ed Orgeron has the Saints staff come up and talk to the LSU staff, uh, offense and defense. And last year um, that happened, and he asked a bit, Pete, Mar- Pete Carmichael, the offense coordinator at, at the Saints, he asked him, look, you know, this year we want you to come up and talk about the RPO. And Pete's like, well, I don't know much about the RPO, but I got someone who does, you know, Joe Brady. And so Joe came up and he wowed the room, I think. Um, it, uh, I think he kind of blew everybody away, uh, all the Saints staff in that, in that room. And from, from then on, I think Ed kind of, had him pegged as a potential guy to hire, you know. And I remember a couple of years ago when Ed had – he wanted 
Pete Carmichael, or at least there was the talk of that, that, that he actually wanted. So he has, he's had his eyes on the Saints in Sean Payton's staff for a while, Ed Orgeron has. And finally, you know, he got someone in Joe Brady who is young enough that he could actually get off of that NFL staff. You know, Pete, Mar- Pete Carmichael going from the Saints to LSU doesn't make much sense. But Joe Brady, who was making, you know, I, the lowest of, of a staff member on the Saints staff, and he said he was the lowest paid guy. Mm-hmm. Getting him was a little easier, especially when you promise him uh, what I think it's a two-year contract, $450,000 a year. So a little easier. And um, so it all, yeah, it all kind of worked out. I don't know. What does it say about Ogeron to a certain degree? I mean, clearly, I, I think there was a, you know, less ended up where less ended up as far as that relationship breaking down in LSU, despite all his success, because he seemed intractable. But Ed, a couple of years ago, tried the Matt Canada thing, and, and that didn't really work out. Uh, and so clearly, you know, Ed, Ed had a, a greater vision here. But it just took a little time to get him to execute that vision. I, at least that's my sense of it. Yeah, it did. It, it took, um, and it took recruiting. You know, I think it was, uh, it was significant, obviously, for them to to uh, land um, uh, Terrace Marshall, the receiver, and Jamar Chase, the other receiver. Which uh, those are two of the top three of their receivers now. You know, they landed them in the recruiting class last year. They're sophomores. Uh, it just, so it took time to kind of build out and recruit those players, I think. Um, and then, of course, you know, Joe Burrow last year getting him from the Ohio from Ohio State. That uh, so it just kind of takes. I think it takes a little time. And even down to the offensive line, I remember talking to an LSU offensive lineman, Toby Weathersby, when I was on the beat there. It was either 2015 or 2016, and we were talking about exactly what me and you were talking about. The slow evolution of how, you know, every year LSU said it was going to change offensively and it never happened. And I remember talking to Toby about it in like real frank, honest conversation. And he's like, look, man, we, we just can't flip a switch and start running the spread because not, not just from a, forget the skill players, the offensive line can't. And, and he was taking me through what, what LSU's offensive linemen have been forever recruited to do in just, always focused on doing and that is run blocking you know and he's like look man we just we can't like wheel around and pass the ball we can't start being a pass blocking unit it takes time and i wonder how much of that had to do with all this too you know is recruiting the right offensive linemen so it just took kind of some years to kind of build it out and and yeah you know the matt canada thing i, I think everybody wanted to uh wanted wanted ed to hire a real flashy name and when he couldn't get lane kiffin that was kind of the next flashing name. That you know, Matt was Matt was it that year that's coming good. out. I mean, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he had, know, had he a was, huge year at Pitt. Yeah, right. Yeah, they were number like ten in the nation in scoring, set all these records. Notre Dame tried to hire him. He got calls from Tennessee and UCLA, and he was like a big name. And uh, so that was kind of the flashy thing. And you know, some Thomas personalities uh, just do not coexist well. And that was a good uh, example. Um, and so he, he went back to Steve Insminger, of course. And, and Steve, I think late last year, you started to see they did start opening up. They realized, I think, what they had in Jamar Chase, the receiver, Jordan Jefferson, the receiver, and Joe Burrow. Like, there was something there. Like they had, to, they had to expound on. And they did it late last season. And then, of course, this year they kind of did the overhaul offense, and, and here we are. Yeah, Burrow's an interesting case. Let's talk about him for a second because now he's in Heisman Trophy candidate you know listen i remember it was 
he was on the same team as Haskins and uh, JT Barrett. It was the Ohio State team that got crushed in the playoff semifinal by Clemson. Now, if you remember correctly, they got they got shut out that day, and they had Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow on the bench. And and you know that that sounds like a sl- a slight yeah. or a knock at at JT Barrett, who was a really good productive college quarterback but certainly wasn't what these guys are but the talk around Burrow even back then and you know to a certain degree you hear this talk about backups and backup quarterbacks especially oh man we love this guy we really think he's going to be you know he's got a lot of potential he could start for you know every you know for half the teams in the country and you kind of roll your eyes a little bit and think eh, yeah maybe yeah sure you're just playing your guy up but there was a lot of there was even more talk about that around Burrow, around coaches who had seen him and recruited him and coached him, than seemed normal. You know, like you felt like yeah. it, there was a certain amount of sincerity with what you were hearing out of the Ohio State camp of how how much they really thought that they had something good here with Burrow, uh, and now he's really he's blossoming into that guy. And I know you know from talking to my buddy uh, Brett Martell who works for the AP down in, in Louisiana and covers the Saints and LSU, he said that the big talk around around Louisiana these days is Saints fans want the Saints to draft Burrow so he'll replace Drew Brees. They think he's just like Drew Brees, you know, the next evolution of Drew Brees. He's just an interesting guy, and, and it's just interesting. But you've been hearing his name for a while, and for him to bust out like this has become, you know, a really remarkable story. Because even last year, you just you saw him last year, and you thought, yeah, this is a serviceable guy. But clearly, there was a whole nother level there. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned the Saints because I've <laughs> I've seen some of that too, especially through social media already. Already, the Saints fans are, are ready for um, for LSU to to uh, or, or for for them to draft an LSU player, which hasn't happened very often. Uh, they broke a, a streak like two years ago. The Saints went like nine years or 10 years or something without drafting an LSU player. And then they drafted Will Clapp in the last round a couple of years ago. But uh, so it hasn't happened a ton. And I think that actually angers both Saints and LSU fans. And so we're, yeah, we're seeing this, this push for, uh, for the Saints to draft Burrow. But, you know, going back to what you were talking about, Ohio State, you, you talked to people back then when he was on the roster. And I mean, I think it was going into the 2017 season, during camp, he was battling with Haskins for the number two job, the backup job, and he I want to say he broke his hand or yeah, finger. Yeah, like Joe yeah, Burrow did. yeah. He he yeah. had he had a hand or finger injury, and again, that was mm-hmm. being sold as he was neck and neck. And again, you hear right. that you hear that all the time, so it's hard to know how much of it to buy. Right, correct. You know, and and yeah, when he did that, he had to get a sit out, and Dwayne took over number two, and he just kind of had the edge. It seemed like the next spring practice, and after spring, I think Joe felt. I mean, I've talked to Joe about it and talked to his dad a little bit about that. And they kind of knew, look, we're, we're close, you know, to Dwayne, it's tight and all, but, but we're probably not going to win the job, you know, during, during camp. It's, it's probably not going to happen. So he decided to put himself on the market and, you know, it's just what surprised me about that situation. And I guess I haven't gotten too detailed on the reporting of it, but only, he only visited two places. Ohio state only gave him permission in the, in the, uh, Whatever you want to call it, that the release. To, yeah, at that to, point, to at that point, to, they were still yeah. asking permission. It was it was pre portal. Right. Yeah, Cincinnati and um, and LSU. That was it. And I think everybody, including Ed Orsron, because he told me straight up one time, thought that he was going to go to Cincinnati. He was going to stay 
home. He was going to play for Luke Fickle, who had who had been mm-hmm. at Ohio State, obviously. Um, that it was almost like it was done, you know. So when he came to visit, he he visited Cincinnati. I think it was the next day or two days later he visited Baton Rouge, and Ed knew he had to almost literally roll out the red carpet because I actually do think they rolled out a purple carpet or something for him, and they just did everything. They took him to go eat crawfish for the first time and all. All this stuff. They 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 did like hours in the film room with him, and I believe his his dad might have been with him too. I mean, it, they just they knew they were the underdog, um, and Edge j- just he thought even after the visit, I think Ed thought he was going to pick Cincinnati, um, but lo and behold, he he picks LSU, and I'm sure he's uh he's glad for it right now because he's got some incredible athletes around him who are obviously making him look a lot better. I mean, Jamar Chase, the receiver, you know, some of the plays he makes are insane. Some of the, some of the, the catches that, that Jordan Jefferson has made is incredible too. And same for Terrace Marshall. He's got some athletic freaks, obviously uh, around him, uh, you know, making him look better. You know, I think it, uh, it, it speaks to this too. And because we see these quarterbacks move around all the time, there's just a, a plethora of conversation of what that means and why they do it and if it's good for the game and if it's good for them. And But I always focus on essentially what happened to Joe Burrow is a good example of you could be one of the best quarterbacks in the country, but if you are the second best quarterback on your team, that doesn't help you, you know, like you, and, and you have to play to show your stuff to have a future in this business and, and sitting behind Dwayne Haskins and being the, the dutiful backup w- was just not a smart idea for Joe Burrow. And now he had the ch- you know, he gave himself an opportunity and now, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what his exactly what his pro stock looks like, but he's a big kid with some mobility and some athleticism and, and some, and some accuracy. I'm guessing he's going to be drafted at this point. So uh, I think sometimes, again, when we, we're, we're quick to look at these kids when they transfer, and I know some people will say, oh, man, they just don't want the competition, and you know, you got to stick by your teammates. But, boy, in the quarterback situation, if you're number two, that just doesn't help you. you got to play. you gotta, you got to have a path to a job and sitting around on the bench being number two but being really good only goes so far on your resume. I want to stick with LSU here for a second, just be, and we're going to run down all the big game this this week. But LSU in Florida, uh, you'll be there. Florida's coming off of a huge win against Auburn. My perspective on that game, I had talked about it last week with Andy Staples on here, was that if Auburn wins and wins going away, maybe I can move Auburn into that super six. You know, right? There are six teams right mm-hmm. now that have separated themselves from the rest of the country: Alabama, Clemson. LSU, Oklahoma, Ohio State, and Georgia. I didn't think Florida winning that game pushed them into that ter- territory. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just didn't think yeah. that. You know, I think that they're still a good defensive team with some other issues. What is your sense going into this? Florida's a big underdog. They're like a two touchdown underdog. It's going to be tough turning around and going on the road after a big win. What's the formula here for Florida to be what would be the first team to slow down LSU? LSU has not missed a beat offensively. They have rolled everybody. This will be the first defense that maybe has a chance to slow them down. Well, I agree. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. Um, I don't think Florida is one of the the, the joins that crew of the, the Super Six. Um, I, I just, in fact, we do like a, a weekly top ten, and I just just put them in my top ten after the Auburn win because I, I just, you know, I I covered their game against Miami. I watched the game, their game against Kentucky, and you just kind of, eh, you know, they're 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 not. 
they just they don't pop out, you know, as a as a great dominant football team. And even again, even the game against Auburn, I mean, it, that's a heck of a win. It is, but I mean, it's it's not like they they crushed Auburn or anything like that. And and they made a lot of mistakes themselves. So I don't think so far that they are yet yeah, in that elite um, company, you know. Uh, and in the win. Obviously, to win over LSU um, in a night game on the road and all that, I mean, that would probably potentially push them in, um, you know, I guess depending on how the game went. But I, I don't necessarily expect that to happen. I, I, I don't – and I don't know the last time I said this about right an LSU team in previous seasons, but I don't know if um, Florida can keep up offensively with LSU. Uh, and like I said, I, I don't know the last time we had we said that about an LSU team. Blank, you know, a, some random opponent can can't keep up with LSU scoring. Like that's just something you never said. But it, it, right now with this team uh, that's averaging whatever forty plus points a game, um, I, I don't think that Florida can do it. Now, what you said about you know LSU hasn't faced a defense like this, and that's that's for sure. I've talked to two people on the staff um, ye- yesterday and Sunday down there. And uh, they're like, man, you know, we they, they are nasty up front, you know, Florida. They they've got they've got some some beef there on the front seven, and we hadn't seen any anybody like that. So they're going to have to block um, and give Joe time, um, and they've got to find a way to run the football. LSU does, and that's something that they've actually kind of again something you didn't ever say previously about LSU's offense, but they're. Little struggle to run the football consistently, right? You know, they, they, they just the haven't noticed. They've been so good on. They've been so good throwing it that you wouldn't yeah. even notice, right? That they've had problems right. running it. And so I think against Utah State last week, they did show a little bit of the more you know ball hogging type that we uh, that we're used to with LSU. So they showed a little bit that they can do that because they're going to need that. They've got to keep the defense off the field a little bit more and. Uh, give it a give it a rest. They got to kind of they got to kind of balance their offensive attack, and we we saw them do that. Uh, but it was against Utah State. So can they can they consistently uh, hold the ball and move the ball uh, against a good defense? And boy, we're gonna we're gonna find out because that Florida D and, I, and again Auburn's offense has not shocked me in any way. Any of the games I've watched from them, but uh, Florida just completely shut them down, and it. Uh, it was impressive, and so they've they've got some freaks there, uh, athletically on defense, and LSU's going to have to going to have their hands full for really the first time uh, this season. I know they played Texas and at Texas, but um, I think Florida's defense is probably going to be stronger um, than the Longhorns. Yeah, it's interesting. The one thing I guess where there was a little bit of a question as far as talent, and, and you know, the scheme part of it aside was, is LSU's offensive line going to be? sort of up to snuff. If is, is it going to be as dominant as it should be? Just as you said, they were still in the process. I think they're still they're still probably in the process of building the type of depth and 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 top level players on that offensive line that they'd like to have it ideally. And that's probably where you know it'll be a good test this week. If they can if they can hold out Grenard, who's been a beast for the Gators and I think Jabari Zuniga is supposed to play this week who did not play last week is another really good defensive end. They shut down Auburn without him and he's maybe, you know, one of the seven or eight best defensive ends in the SEC where there's a lot of good defensive ends. So, yeah, I think this will be a good test for LSU's offensive line and how much they can do as far as A, run the ball, but B, also just protecting Burrow. Yeah, and they got uh, they got a big boost. They got 
uh, Ed Ingram had been suspended for for a year. They got him back, and he's he's a stud of a guard. That really really helps them um, uh, moving forward because they, that was a big piece. They they, they felt LSU's offensive line this year. I felt like one man away from being uh, strong, being a solid, strong unit. And when they they getting Ed Ingram back is is really significant, you know. And Osto, I mean, I was on the beat when he was a true freshman. I, I believe that Ed Ingram became like the first true freshman in like 50 years, you know, to start a game, start a season opener for LSU back in 2017 when I was on the beat there. So he's a stud, and uh, that was that was a huge huge thing to to get him back. All right, so we've got a ton of great games this weekend. It maybe is the most interesting and compelling weekend of the season because the season has come along. It, it's gotten listen. It's always fun. College football always provides some great highlights and and a lot of cool stuff. But this is probably the first weekend where you kind of sit back and say, "All right, we got we got some stuff going on." So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to hit all those very cool games uh, and very big games beyond just LSU and Florida with Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is presented by Regions Bank. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo talking with Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. Uh, We got LSU, Florida in the books We've got five. I got five games listed here that are pretty compelling. Three of them are ranked versus ranked matchups. And what I'm just going to hit you with is what are you watching for? Basically, what's the interesting storyline in this particular game? And we will start with if LSU Florida is one, this is one A. You can maybe even flip them, flip flop them around. Red River, Texas and Oklahoma. These are the best two teams in the Big 12. These are two teams with playoff uh, aspirations. What are you looking for here, Ross? Looking for to see if a team can slow down Jalen Hurts. You know, I mean, we we saw a little bit against Kansas. You know, they did actually do that. They slowed down. Of all the teams, uh, Kansas, at least the first half, kind of slowed them down a little bit. I was on the phone this morning with a coach trying to figure out why, how they did it, you know, and he was telling me about kind of the pressures that, Kansas brought they they did some different looks and that's the thing about I think about Jalen you got you got to get back there and rattle him you can't just let him sit, sit I know it's kind of a cliche thing to say about any quarterback but you can't just let him sit back there but you got to watch it because he's got feet and he'll just escape from the pocket so um you, you got to bring I think an assortment of pressure and, and I think you know Kansas did that uh, pretty significantly against him and I think you'll see it from Todd Orlando the Texas defensive coordinator who is not scared uh about bringing pressure, um, he did it often against LSU, and it actually killed them um, yeah, late in the point. game. Yeah. It really did. But but he's going to probably do it again, and uh, that's the way you got to you got to beat Jalen. Probably is what at least what you hear from coaches is is you you got to pressure him, and you got to get to him, and you got to have um, you got to kind of have the edge set in a way where he can't escape when you do pressure him. So. Uh, it's going to be interesting. That's kind of the big matchup we're looking for. But I, you know, I covered that game last year in Dallas, and it was it was unbelievable. And it was like a track meet. And I expect um, something similar. You know, like like forty eight to forty five type of thing. Uh, you think Texas has uh, got it in them to beat them again? I think so. Um, and when you look at the lines, and you talk to people who know a lot more than than me about football, um, they'll they'll tell you that. Uh, the Texas Texas might uh, might have the better the better uh, guys up front, and and that's that's where a lot of the obviously games in football are won. So 
I think they do. Um, do I think they will? Will they? Uh, I'm not so sure. Probably not. Like I'm, I'm leaning toward Oklahoma, but I feel like they would cover the 10 point spread at least, which seems wildly large. Yeah. That, well, it's also in those games sometimes though, when you have that much scoring, um, yep. it, it gets a little easier, I guess, to, to cover those lines. All right. So that game, the game I'm going to talk to you about next will probably be nothing like that game. And that's, and that's, and that's Penn State at <laughs> Iowa. Now, Penn State has shown a ton of explosiveness. You covered, because it's in your backyard now uh, with you living in the mm-hmm. D.C. area, you were there to see what Penn State did to Maryland, which was just an obliteration, and they did it again to Purdue. This is the first test for Penn State as far as road game, pretty good defense, a team that can sort of look at them eye to eye. I found Penn State to be one of the more interesting teams of the first, like I guess it's not even quite halfway through the season, and that... I'm almost positive they're good. I really don't know just like what the ceiling is here, and I, I I suspect we'll get a little better view of that in Kinnick Stadium against Iowa. Yeah, I think we'll um, I think we'll know a lot after that game because Iowa's defense is no joke, and in Penn State has certainly uh, not seen anything quite like that um, yet this season. In in Penn, Penn State's offense is impressive, and they. They got the, the Clifford, John Clifford, the quarterback, who's stepped in nicely for McSorley. Um, and then they've got the, the receiver, uh, KJ Hamler, who is one of the faster players I've seen on a football field recently. And that go, and, and they got Noah Kane, um, the running back. They've got some speed, uh, offensively. So it'll be interesting to see that speed offensively go against an Iowa, de- Iowa defense that I think has allowed, like, 40 points or 37 points all season. It's It's been a pretty amazing. Iowa and Wisconsin have been incredible in uh, in their numbers statistically and the points they've allowed. So Penn State has seen nothing like Iowa uh, for sure. Um, so that'll be uh, that'll be interesting, uh, interesting to watch. And of course, it's at Iowa, you know. So um, man, that um, that's gonna be that's gonna be a tough one. And you know, we're gonna we're gonna learn we're gonna learn a lot after that game if if uh, if the Nittany Lions are the old contender or pretender yeah i think that that's what this comes down to they have they have they have iowa michigan michigan state coming up if they roll out of that uh stretch well if they roll out of that stretch three and oh we probably have to take them really seriously yeah. but even if they come out of that two and one then all of a sudden mm-hmm. i think you can start looking at them toward that ohio state game in in mid-november mm-hmm. and think that they might have a might have a legitimate chance to take down the buckeyes next one you know it's a ranked game it's a game matching ranked teams. It's probably Alabama's toughest game to date, but it's hard to get think it like to get too excited about Alabama visiting Texas A and M because Texas A and M. Listen, Texas. The, the the most interesting things on Texas A and M. I can't believe they're still ranked. And listen, I mean, I'm you know my association with the poll is what it is. I don't vote, but. We run it here, but even me, I've got the voters. I've kind of found myself being a little perplexed at why the voters are sticking with <laughs> Texas A&M here. Their best two performances have still been losses. You know, they, they lost to Auburn. They lost to Clemson. They're going to be, I believe it's the 29th team in the history of the AP poll to face the number one team in a season twice because Clemson was number one and now Alabama is number one. This seems like A and M is not quite ready for prime time here. But what do you think, Ross? Is this a chance for to us to see Alabama be tested? Yeah, I don't know why that A and M is ranked either. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's somewhat uh, yeah a little baffling to me, especially since their last 
performance um, was not a very good one against, uh, obviously, a, a bad Arkansas team that lost to San Jose State at home. Um, you know, them struggling to beat Arkansas. And I know that game is kind of a rivalry game. It's always kind of close and stuff. But, man, they they just, yeah, they've not, uh, you know, Kellen Mond has not looked like uh, the guy I expected him to look like this year. And I, I just can't see this game being very close, at least, at least once you get, you know, in deep or halfway through the third quarter. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like uh, – th- this doesn't set up to me at least like some – potential upset, you know, or something like that. It, it, it didn't feel that way at all. Um, I think uh, Tua and his, uh, his gang of receivers will uh, probably carve up some, uh, some turf there at, at the Kyle Field. Let me ask you, you know, it's only we jump on these coaches so quickly. Jimbo will have been a year, barely a year and a half into his tenure, right? But he did get a $75 million tenure guaranteed contract. If A&M doesn't stand up to Alabama, doesn't give Alabama a whole lot of resistance, is it fair to say that maybe Jimbo's second years ends up being a little bit of a disappointment? My sense is no. I I don't know if I would. You know, though I guess you know coming back, I think about it. Coming into the season, I thought that there was an outside chance that A and M could be at least a team that pushed Alabama, a team that contended in that division in a sense of maybe not a playoff contender, but it was sort of in the mix. And you know, again, so far what I've seen, I don't that doesn't look like that at all. And is it fair to to that we maybe are should we be expecting that of Jimbo's team already? Well, you know, I think what heightened expectations for this year obviously was what happened last year. You know, they 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 kind of surprised some of us, um, especially me. I'm sitting there at the goal line of on the field of the the Clemson game at, at Kyle Field when they were about to tie it up with a two point conversion. It ended up failing, but the fact that they were there. Uh, it says a lot. And then they ended up, you know, beating LSU last year and um, breaking a long streak there. So they, they did some things. Um, they did some things last year that you kind of didn't expect already in year one under Jimbo. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that obviously heightens expectations. And I think that's probably what happened. You know, we were expecting them to, um, to kind of uh, extend that success that they had last year with a miserably difficult schedule yeah. um, at the beginning of, of this season. And uh, I, I still think they're a team that could, you know, end up finishing eight and four, nine and four with a bowl or something like that, similar to, to last year's just expectations just kind of felt, uh, felt that they kind of soared on them after last season. And we all know it, it takes, you know, goes several recruiting classes, you know, uh, three or four classes to get everything, um, uh, get everything straight in and I think you'll eventually see that you know I think what also happened with A&M too and I'll I'll even say for me you know I looked at you had Alabama at the top of that division and I looked at LSU and was a little skeptical because again what we talked about before hey they're going to open it up this year okay sure fine and you look at Auburn and Auburn always seems to be a team that could go either direction right (laughs) just it could you know they could they could be a rocket ship or they could tank so I looked at those A&M in the context of those two other teams and thought, yeah, sure, A&M could be, absolutely be as good as either of those two teams. It's going to be a rebuilding year at Ole Miss. Arkansas is not really a factor. You throw in Mississippi State. I wasn't really sure what to expect out of them. So 
to say like, oh, I, we had expectations for A&M. Maybe they could end up being second in the West. I think that was probably as much a statement about what the competition we thought was in the West. Mm-hmm. You know, A&M right, might, right. might just A&M might be just going about developing at, at a normal rate, right? This is year two. Maybe it's a small step forward. The thing is, LSU has sort of caught fire, and Auburn ends up being, you know, probably a little better than we expected to. So I think the context of A&M and expectations may have more to do with uh, the neighborhood it's hanging out in. And it's a tough neighborhood. And if LSU and Auburn have their act together, it becomes a really tough neighborhood. And I, I think we came into this season not 100% sure LSU and Auburn would have their act together. So next game. So right. we're going to get out of the games that are not, are, are not ranked teams versus ranked teams, but they're still pretty interesting matchups. USC goes out to Notre Dame. As interesting as any part of this is, USC's 3-2. and two. The Notre Dame game is always a measuring stick for obvious reasons. Clay Helton, you know, they still don't have an AD there. So I think the idea that he's going to be fired during the season, I I think we can probably put that aside because they don't have an AD yet. Uh, At least I I looked at Twitter. I haven't seen anything on there. I haven't got any calls. So as of this moment, as we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, uh, USC does not have an AD. Nonetheless, though, this is the type of game that has been getting away. Like USC has not beaten Notre Dame enough. They've lost some bad. They've lost in some bad fashion to Notre Dame in the past couple of years. I think that's as interesting as anything that happens with Notre Dame in this game. Is what does USC look like? What are you looking for in this game, Ross? Yeah, it. Um, so you're saying that uh, that Clay is not going to be left at the South Bend Airport? Is that, that what you're saying? I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think so. But you know, again, you never know what happens when they touch ground in L.A. Right <laughs> on, yeah, the, on the tarmac, right. on the tarmac LAX, in Southern yeah, California. Yeah. Some, some business I, gets I, uh, done there. You know, I don't know what I expected from USC. I guess they they had. I mean, I think this ends. This is their maybe sixth game, right? And so it ends this first six game stretch that is just brutal. I mean, before the season, you saw it and thought, man, if they go four and two, that'll be. That'll be wonderful, you know. But they're, and they're sitting here at three and two, and they could, could go four and two. Um, I think probably most people had them at least win the BYU game, um, and then maybe losing this game at you know to be four and two. Um, but you know, I, I don't know what necessarily I expected. It was tough, so tough to get a read on them. I went out there in July for a story on Graham Harrell and sit down with all of them, and there was this excitement about the air raid, and then they lost their starting quarterback JT Daniels, and then they lost their backup quarterback. And and here they are with the third stringer, and they're they're still winning games and putting up numbers. Um, so it's it's just been the craziest first five games uh, for them. And um, one little play here and there, and they're and they're four and one. And, and it's just uh, it's been it's been weird. So they will be going against a defense that I would guess is probably the best that they've seen. I mean, I know Utah has got a good group over there, but I. I would think they're not going to have seen a defense like Notre Dame has got. And I saw it live against Georgia. And I do think Kirby, and this has been written about a few times, but Kirby in, in Georgia's offense during that game was probably a little conservative, probably a little over-conservative. Um, but Notre Dame's D um, looked looked really good, you know, and, until late in that game it kind of got away from them. And so that will be interesting to, to see, you know, Graham's, uh, Graham's air raid uh, go against this defense, and you got to stay competitive, right? If Clay has 
any chance. And right now, I believe they're undefeated in the league, so they could still win the league. And, oh well, no, they, they lost. To, they lost to Washington, but they only played one it's division. Washington, they're two and right. one. They're two and one in the league, and they've only played right. one division game. And they did win that, and that's against Utah, supposedly right. the best team in that division, and they have a, a tiebreaker on them. So they're not. Right. They're they're right. they actually are in pretty nice shape when it comes mm-hmm. to the Pac-12, considering the Pac-12 is a mess. Right, right. Yeah, I forgot they they uh, lost in that the last game, right? At yeah, at right before their bye. I, uh, yeah, so you know, there's yeah, there's they're in a good position uh, to potentially win the division too. They could win the division with four losses. <laughs> they might have like four losses or so, but um, but just you know, if they win the division and happen to like win the conference, even if they do have four losses, I don't honestly. I and maybe it's just me talking here as a someone who who knows that that Clay Helton is. Uh, you know, one of the nice guys in, in college football kind of thing. But, you know, if you win the division, even if you lost three or four games, uh, it seems like you would be able to keep your job, especially if you go on and win the, the conference championship. So they, that's still that's still attainable. But in games like this, right, big national, you know, spotlight and on NBC and against Notre Dame, and you you gotta you got to hang in there. you got to kind of hang around. Don't get blown out. Um Whatever you do, you know, and, and that's that's the thing I'm watching for here. You know, can they score enough points in the defense where it is, you know, against that Notre Dame defense where it's not a 24-3 game or something going into the fourth quarter? Yeah, that, that's a good point, right? So they hung with Notre Dame last year for a while, uh, sort of pushed mm-hmm. the, the undefeated Irish. So that was in USC, kind of a weird game at the end of the year. It almost seemed like Notre Dame was a little, like, tense the first half. A couple of years ago, they got blown out at – South Bend, and it has been part of a bit of a narrative that has been a problem for Clay, aside from the fact that they didn't make a bowl last year, that even in some of the bigger games, you know, they they yeah. play, play Ohio State in, I believe it was the Cotton Bowl that year, and got blown out. And they played Notre Dame and get blown out. They played Alabama and they got blown out. So there's been this also, this this narrative around Clay is not only that even when they were good, they weren't really that good. Like the first year when they win the Rose Bowl, or they win the conference, second year when they win the Rose Bowl, that they're, they're, there's something still missing there. They're not playing at yeah. a, a championship level. And I'm not sure if that's completely fair. They also beat a really good uh, a Penn State team. But nonetheless, I think this is where that game comes into play. And if they, you're right, it's, it's such a weird thing because Clay is one of the – I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, like – there's so much else going on at that school, and he's a here's like a decent mm-hmm. guy with integrity at a school that is just right. like really had its integrity just ripped from it. And mm-hmm. if they were to beat Notre Dame and move on and have a pretty good and end up in even just in the conference championship game, not even say win the conference, but go to the conference championship game, you find yourself thinking like, could they still fire him? Like. Like what? What is the what is the the math if they do beat Notre Dame? Like this is your big mm-hmm. rival. This is the game that your fans say we have to win. And if you go on the road and beat Notre Dame, does that change everything, or does that change nothing? It, it, it's such a weird spot that USC is in right now. It's 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 like it feels like the possibilities are endless. But maybe they're not. Maybe there is only one inevitable conclusion to this. Right. That he's fired. Yeah. I know. That, yeah, that eventually, uh, yeah, that eventually he's just going to get fired almost no matter what he does. It's right. such a bizarre spot. All right, let, let's hit this one because, again, this what sort of looks like a good game on the schedule. But in reality, I'm not sure how much Florida State is going to have in the tank for Clemson. But I wanted to talk about it because it's a little bit 
it's, it has at least a little bit like the Clay Helton situation in that Willie Taggart's got mm-hmm. a couple of wins in a row now. And they went into an off week with a two-game winning streak. And it seems like they finally have some normalcy around that program. They've finally been able to sort of take a breath. We haven't talked for, you know, three weeks about buyouts and what do you do next and, and mm-hmm. dehydration and, you know, and all, you know, they brought Jim Levitt in there as a, an analyst and it seems to have settled down the defense. But now, of course, you have Clemson. And I don't think they necessarily, Florida State necessarily has to beat Clemson to in any way affect what Willie Taggart's job status is and his, the program going forward. But it would be interesting to see like how far away they are from Clemson because last year I believe they got beat something like 51-3. to So what are you watching for in this game? I'm more interested in Clemson than them. You know, that's one thing with uh, Florida State. They, uh, they, they're on a two-game winning streak, but, man, they don't make anything easy. I mean, it's like every game is like this. Either they're blowing a big lead late or, or they're coming back or something, and it's this tight game late that's poorly played and there's penalties everywhere. It's, it has been a just bizarre season. Every time you watch them, it, it's, it's just like kind of like a circus, man. You don't know what's going on. I mean, it, it's just wild. Um, nothing, nothing comes easy. But after, you know, after Clemson lost to, or almost lost, almost lost to North Carolina, um, I'm looking more for, for kind of for them here and like what they're going to look like after they probably had, you know, one of their worst games in the last couple of years um, at, at, in Chapel Hill. So, yeah, I'm, I'm more so looking at, at them to see how they're going to, how they're going to kind of follow that up. You know, I saw a lot of stuff coming out of Clemson this week um, about analyzing that North Carolina game. You know, Trevor Lawrence was saying, you know, kind of going through all of his mistakes that he made in the game. So, you know, a week and a half later, we're still talking about the North Carolina game. And so I'm curious to how, you know, how many, obviously in the rankings, they've dropped um, some significantly. I mean, not in the, in the AP, I think, of the coaches, but in other things like power rankings and other things like that, they've dropped as far as out of the top four. And so, I don't know. You just you, you wonder if there's some kind of lingering hangover there from that um, game. Are they going to come out and just like start, you know, plowing through Florida State because they're all they have this pent up anger, you know, from from how they looked and what everybody's saying about them now? Um, or are they going to look like they did against North Carolina and, and Florida State's going to make it a game, you know? So either way, um, I think we're probably maybe in for a decent game because if you look at every game Florida State's played. Uh, it's just, it's been entertaining in the end, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, they have put up a bunch of points, and, and maybe that gets them into the second half competitive here. But, yeah, I, I definitely see your point as, and I think a lot of people are waiting for that big sort of Clemson performance, right? That breakout where Lawrence just looks as good as he did last year, late in the season, and it all comes together, and they are up. 35 nothing at half. Now, listen, they, they put away Georgia Tech pretty easily early in the season. As much as Florida State is not vintage Florida State, they're a hell of a lot better than Georgia Tech. Like, there is at least, there are some athletes at Florida State, and there are some players there that should at least provide a little bit of a test for Clemson. But again, will Clemson be typical Clemson? 
So we run through the big games there. It's a great slate. It's a great weekend to be sitting on your couch and just flipping around and watching these games from beginning again. I want to end on one other thing. So we had an interesting firing over the weekend. And, and again, I'm going to tap into your expertise from your time in Baton Rouge. Les Miles fired his offensive coordinator on Sunday. Now, the cool thing that's happened with Kansas is the one good game Kansas played this year, everybody in the country watched it. Because <laughs> it was Friday night and there was nothing else on, and they went into Boston College and they beat the living hell out of the Eagles. And every other game, they have been very much Kansas. They have they have not been particularly good. They've struggled to beat bad teams. They've gotten blown out by good teams. It has been very very Kansas. Now a lot of people like me were skeptical of this hire in the first place with less. But again, you know Les pretty well. You covered him for a while. You, I know you've written a couple of stories about that. You know what he's trying to do at Kansas. What exactly was this about firing the? I mean, to me, when when you see a coach fire a staffer at this point in the season, what I jump to is you made a bad hire. You did something wrong on the front end here. What is this one all about? Well, let's let's go back and and uh, and talk about. You, you mentioned that yeah, you made a bad hire. You know, Les Koning wasn't his first hire. Remember, he hired Chip Lindsey, of course, to be his offensive coordinator. And I think what within a month—that's a good Chip point. I'd forgotten that. it's a good point. Yeah, so so Les scrambled and hired Les Koning, and um, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know too much of the details, but I'll tell you this: the game against Boston College, the one, the one game they looked really good and, and didn't look like the typical Kansas. Um, they ran a lot of the spread concepts and kind of RPO stuff that Brent Deerman, um, the analyst on staff, their offensive analyst on staff, had kind of helped incorporate into the game plan. Uh, players said it after the game. Les told me it after the game. You know, Deerman, um, who Les brought there, uh, he's a small, long-time small college head coach who's had some great offenses that have scored like bazillions of points, and he spent a couple years on Gus Malzahn's staff as an analyst at Auburn. So he runs a lot of the spread, the RPO stuff, things like that. And so they used that against Boston College. They destroyed, as you mentioned, just a disarray of Boston College. It was wild to watch. And then they looked like Kansas every other game. And in the next week, I think it was they played West Virginia. And they went kind of back to the old stuff. And they didn't do a lot of the RPO stuff, I heard. And there was some infighting, I think, on the staff about, um, you know, what to, how to approach it offensively and, and using this stuff that Deerman had and the old, older stuff that less, both of the lesses had. And I guess at the end, you know, uh, less all along, uh, probably it sounds like was impressed with this analyst, uh, Brent Deerman and impressed with what, how he helped out in that, uh, Boston college game and some of his concepts and, and that credit to less, he did something that he, Never did at LSU. I mean, Les rarely fired anybody. And if he did, it certainly wasn't in the middle of the season. So it was a, it was a uh, interesting and unusual move for him. Um, but he, he obviously, I think more so it was, it was Deerman and the, you know, his expertise and, uh, in his, his, uh, concepts that Les has finally, I guess, kind of gotten on board with. Yeah, it's been. Uh, we'll see what happens from here. Again, I, I think that there's a lot of folks who are a little skeptical about that marriage of Les and Kansas, 
And, you know, it's not even a knock on Les. There's just so much work to be done there. And you just wonder if, if Les is the perfect guy to, to elevate a program that has been so far down for so long. Well, Ross, listen, unbelievable insight. I have kept you more than long enough. Thanks so much for uh, making the debut here on the uh, the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Ross Dellinger from SI. Enjoy Baton Rouge. Are you going to be there long enough to like catch up with some old – it's not like you've been gone very long. I mean, if you, you, you probably still have stuff left behind in Baton Rouge, right? You, yeah, you only moved a few yeah, we, weeks ago, didn't you? Yeah, well, a little longer, but yeah, I mean, we moved here in April, to D.C. in April. Okay, so um, it's been a little gone. longer than that. Okay. Yeah, we and we haven't been back yet. So this will be our first trip back. We have a, we own a house down there. We run it out, so we'll we'll ride by that. We'll see some friends. We're gonna be there for a few days. I'm gonna be gathering some other things down there for future stuff. And uh, so we'll yeah we'll be there. We'll get a chance to uh, to see old friends and some family and and do that thing. So uh, I'm excited to get uh, to get down there. Great. Well, hey Ross, travel safe, and hopefully we'll run into each other in a press box real soon. Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. Thanks so much today. Thanks, Rob. And now, three and out. First down. If you're a fan of the TV show Last Chance You on Netflix, you're probably familiar with Malik Henry. He is the talented former blue chip quarterback recruit, and he is scheduled to make his first start in major college football this weekend for Nevada against San Jose State. Now, I have to say, I haven't watched the Last Chance You seasons that involved Henry's time at Independence Community College in Kansas, but I know Henry's story. He's a California kid who went to three high schools, including IMG Academy in Florida. He went to Florida State, but lasted only one year there, then landed in Kansas at the junior college. He didn't play all that well, and by all accounts, he didn't come off particularly well in the TV series. Uh, But talent gets you multiple last chances. So Jay Norvell, the coach of Nevada, brought Henry in as a walk-on this year. He lost the competition to be the starting quarterback heading into the season. But Nevada's had some struggles, especially in their last game where they got blown out by Hawaii. So now Malik Henry gets a chance to be a starting quarterback in major college football. Second down. So if you pay close attention to polls like I do, throughout the years, one of the things you will find, it happens fairly consistently. There will be a team that starts the season unranked, stays under the radar for much of the first half of the year, then surges in the second half to finish somewhere in the top 15, maybe even better than that. Missouri could be that team this season. The Tigers are scoring really well with computer analytics rankings, things like Bill Conley's SP Plus and Brian Fremo's FEI ratings. But the Tigers also lost their opener at Wyoming, thanks to uh, one really sloppy quarter of football. But they've been steamrolling opponents ever since behind Kelly Bryant, the transfer quarterback from Clemson. I had a feeling Missouri could work its way into the top 25 at some point this season because of a pretty accommodating schedule with crossover games against Ole Miss and Arkansas, but they really played even better than I thought they would. They have been tremendous. Now I'm starting to wonder if the Tigers could head into consecutive November games against Georgia and Florida as legit SEC East contenders. Third down. Recurring AP Top 25 podcast guest, 
David Hale of ESPN puts a lot of interesting facts on his Twitter feed. But my favorite from earlier this week involved a game that's a little off the radar but could mean a lot in the Big Ten West. Nebraska is at Minnesota. The Gophers are 5-0. and They are the one undefeated Power 5 team that is not ranked. Since 2004, and this is from David Hale, since 2004, there have been five other teams from Power 5 conferences or BCS conferences, if you want to use that lingo from back when there was a BCS, that started the season 5-0 and without being ranked in the AP Top 25. All five of those teams lost their sixth game. Nebraska will try to make it two straight victories, but might have to do it without quarterback Adrian Martinez, who is banged up. The Gophers' first four victories all came by one score. They are an above-average team on both sides of the ball, but they're not like that far above average. We spotted this coming even before the season. Minnesota, another team with a schedule that's built for success. If they win this one, all that stands in the way of the Gophers being 8-0 when they host Penn State in about four weeks is Rutgers and a home game against Maryland. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast was presented by Regions Bank.